I don't believe any time in July the four of us regulars of this podcast have been together. So it's going to be a fun episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. Do I need to make introductions, or do you remember each other? (laughs) (laughs) We have a ton of news to talk about for a Tuesday. Usually, it's one of our slower days. So let's get to it. We will not get to it all. Is Cleveland City Hall going to pay the travel costs of Cleveland residents going to other states for abortions? Layla, this sounds so basic and simple, but this is pretty radical idea for the use of tax dollars. What's the plan? It is. It is very radical. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb and City Council announced on Monday that that they intend to create a $100,000 reproductive freedom fund to cover travel, lodging, and, and related expenses for city residents and employees who are seeking abortions in nearby states where abortion is still legal. And city officials are still working out all the details about this plan and, and how the funding is going to be administered and, and who's going to be eligible. And the money would likely come from the general fund and it will involve the Department of Public Health. So there's lots of details to still hammer out. But it's just really stunning because nothing like this has ever been proposed before. It's part of a six-point plan aimed at protecting reproductive rights in Cleveland. And there are other prongs included uh, some of them mirror what other other you know governments are doing, ple- a pledge from the city prosecutor not to prosecute or participate in the prosecution of abortion-related charges. That's one of them. The Cleveland police will deprioritize abortion-related investigations when it comes to using city personnel or time or money or city employees. They're going to treat abortion-related investigations as the lowest priority. Uh, city officials are are also considering various options for its employee health insurance plans and trying to determine whether all plans offered could cover elective out-of-state abortions and and also to avoid putting anyone in jeopardy of facing a future prosecution of an abortion-related crime. The city will attempt not to retain any information about any individual's pregnancy status. So if the city does have that info on file, the city won't share it with any third party. So those are all the prongs of the plan, but the most, the one that really, really caught our attention was this $100,000 reproductive freedom fund. Yeah, I don't recall well, hearing news of any other city doing such a thing. Well, I, and hopefully we'll do an analysis of this because you're talking about the, the purpose of taxation. And, and if we put away the very charged debate about abortion and just think about this from the taxation mechanism. Taxes were created to provide services to the taxpayers that they can't afford for themselves. You can't afford to have your own fire truck, so you pay taxes. Government has a fire truck and a police, and they pick up the garbage, and they take care of the parks. This is stretching it to to say we're going to use tax dollars to help our residents go and deal with this health matter is interesting. Cleveland does have a Department of Public Health, so it does have a responsibility to its residents when it comes to matter of health. It's just, I don't, I'm trying to think of a parallel. What what other service does government provide based on taxes, local government, not the national or state government, that that is similar to this? Because there are people who are very much against abortion that would be aghast that their taxes are being used to pay for someone to get it, while there'll be many, especially in Cleveland, that say, 
right on, Justin Bibb. This is a good use of tax dollars to deal with the ridiculous antics of our federal government. Hmm. I, I just wonder how long it will take to use up that $100,000. I mean, it could be used up really fast, and then what? Yeah, I was I, I my... was thinking about that, too. I mean, there are about, I think, I want to say 4,500 abortions performed in Cuyahoga County each year, or at least there were. Um, I think that's the right figure based on state numbers. And, and I'm not sure how many of those are Cleveland residents who would qualify for this assistance. I'm not sure what the qualifications would be. I um, But what I was wondering is, you know, how quickly applicants would be able to get this funding. Because I'm not sure that mm. there's a bureaucracy less nimble than <laughs> Cleveland City Hall. And if there's anyone who doesn't have weeks and weeks to spare for their application to meander its way through the approval process, it's a woman seeking an abortion. If she's seeking that assistance, chances are she doesn't have the money to pay for the procedure or the out-of-state travel up front and wait for a reimbursement. So the city, in designing this, will really have to put a lot of thought into ways to expedite the process because time is really of the essence for people who are seeking this help. Um, that that was the first thing that, that came to mind for me. I was like, oh boy, well, let's see how this goes. I mean, nothing moves fast they, at City Hall. But if they do that, Layla, they can then turn around and use that system to refund all of our income taxes right. that they're sitting oh, on. That, see, that's a perfect point. <laughs> look how slow Look how slow they've been with that process. We are deep into July, and they, they are like a third of the way through tax refunds. So how quickly would they turn around an application for assistance for something like this? It would have to be like in a matter of days. So, you know, that was the first thing that came to mind for me. I, I hadn't thought of the implication that you're bringing up, which is a good one, Chris. And I, I'll have to put some thought into that today. Although... Although, if you think about it, the right to counsel I, I in an eviction proceeding right. is a stretch. It is a stretch. I, look, Je Justin Bibb came in saying he's going to change government. He's going to serve the residents. This kind of radical thinking is what people wanted. This is why he beat the entrenched longtime City Hall guy, Kevin Kelly. It's it's just when you come out with that radical idea, it makes you stand back on your heels. You're going to use tax dollars to help people get abortions. Right. It's it's worth chewing on. It's worth considering. But I salute him for trying to serve the residents of the city in the way they want to be served. This was a thoughtful approach. Yeah. If you look at his entire plan, this is good stuff. Yeah, I think when you were looking for parallels, right to counsel was one of the was the thing that popped to mind. Just because I think there is probably a sector of the population who find that use of tax money to be somewhat objectionable or, you know, controversial, just because of how they might feel about the way landlords are are pegged in that conversation. But um, well, yeah. And if you use tax dollars to buy back guns off the street, that's a weird use of tax dollars, but it's very much aimed at public safety. Generally, they don't mm -hmm. use tax dollars for that. They get something that they trade back. But if they did, you could make an argument. This is will save lives, and that's part of the purpose of government. Anyway, great stuff to, to talk about. Hopefully, we'll be having more content that delves deeper into it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The 13th Congressional District was drawn as a toss-up that leans slightly Democratic. The money being raised leans more than slightly that way. What's the latest campaign finance report show for all of the congressional races in Ohio, Lisa? 
Yeah, the 13th district has no incumbent, so it's it's all, you know, it's a free-for-all, more or less. Uh, this uh, district includes all of Summit County, northern Stark County, and a slight piece of Portage County. So current state representative Amelia Sykes uh, has, no, has no primary opponent. She raised $527,000 in the second quarter. She spent only $161,000, and she has $595,000 on hand. Her GOP candidate Madison Gessiato Gilbert, who's a North Canton attorney, she was in a seven-way primary, so she probably spent a lot of money there. She raised $323,000, including a $50,000 loan to herself. She has about $425,500 on hand. So yeah, you can see a clear, this was supposed to be winnable for either party with a slight Democratic edge, but it looks like it's more than a slight edge in that district. And in the Max Miller district, there's a different story. He's running away with it. We add this, uh, the 7th Congressional District is Southern and Western Cuyahoga County. It's also Medina, Wayne, and Northern Holmes counties. Max Miller, who was a former member of the Trump administration, uh, he raised... uh, $284,000 in the second quarter. Compare that to his Democratic opponent, Matt Deemer, who's a podcaster from Bay Village. He raised a mere $43,340, and he only has about $38,600. I'm sorry, only $28,000 left in his bank account. But Max Miller has over the course of his campaign, not just the second quarter, he's loaned himself $650,000. That's a lot of money to take out of your pocket. I, I still think Max Miller's fate rests somewhat on what happens with Donald Trump and the January 6th commission. I don't think this is as done a deal as as everybody thinks because we don't know what we don't know. Interesting stuff. I think Sabrina Eaton put it all together, all of the campaign finance reports. Check them out on cleveland.com. Going out of order. One of the most interesting stories we published so far this month is about the Menor Marsh. Laura, I saved this one for you. <laughs> While we all are well aware of the fires and other problems they've had there, I think we all learned a lot about how this place came to be from a story by Pete Krause. I think you were probably as interested as I was. Oh, absolutely. I knew nothing about the Menor Marsh before reading Pete's story. And it's fascinating and maddening how like one action more than 50 years ago can have such giant repercussions. But this is a largely forested wetland along Lake Erie. It's Ohio's first state nature preserve. And it began dying in 1966 after a contractor dumped more than 200,000 tons of waste salt into a feeder stream called Blackbrook Creek. This is obviously before the Clean Water Act and the creation of the US EPA and before the nature preserve designation in 1971. Morton Salt Company had hired a company run by a guy named Jerome T. Osborne Sr. to get rid of this low-grain salt. And the idea was, hey, we'll just fill in this seven-acre ravine with salt, and that'll be all done, you know, all gone. But basically, all the trees in the marsh died. All the vegetation was choked out by this infestation of phragmites, which is a non-native reed grass that crowded out everything else. They lost all the diverse native species of birds, animals, and aquatic life. And the last big fire happened in 2003 that's when the fragments dry out and they just catch fire there's dark black soot dropped 20 miles away it made international news so in come the epa and the cleveland museum of art sorry <laughs> cleveland museum of natural history and they are trying to save it the the idea that 
pouring salt into that, not salt, I mean, it was junk salt, right, into waste, that ravine yeah. could completely change the face of a big swath of the lakefront, destroying it, really, and turning it into a nightmare. I, I just, I did not know that. I knew that that they had all the invasive species and it caught fire regularly. We've covered it over the years. I guess it's been a while since the last one, but I just didn't realize any of that. I, I, I know been paying attention. One action can have s such huge changes to the environment and it's taking so long to clean it up. You, it, this isn't something you can just fix overnight. So they have, since 2012, the museum has been dropping herbicide on areas of the marsh from a helicopter. They hired a, contractor to drive an amphibious vehicle through the marsh to mash down those fragmites so they would rot and expose, expose the soil to sunlight. And then work crews were dispatched to spot treat those areas with herbicide. I mean, that's been going on for a decade now. They still have hot spots. And the EPA is working on the, um, the original salt waste. They have $10.6 million contract to stop the leaching, allow the salt to be flushed from the marsh once and all. They put a cap on it. But you think, good Lord. I mean, and so it you can see the difference in the photos now. Pete's got great photos, what it looks like now compared to what it looks like a couple years ago. It's it's getting better. Foxes, fog, frogs, wild turkeys, they've all returned. Migratory birds are stopping there. And they've identified 26 species of fish in the march, including yellow perch. So that's all really, really good news. But you wonder how many tens of millions of dollars taxpayers and philanthropies have been spending on this just because one guy decided to dump a bunch of stuff there 50 you know 50 some years ago yeah and anybody who gardens this is weeding on a massive unimaginable oh scale <laughs> right i mean you're <laughs> dropping stuff from helicopters it's it's yeah it's hard to imagine what that is all like great stuff by pete kraus check it out it's on cleveland.com the free stamp sculpture in Cleveland is one of the city's best known images and for some years now has been the gathering place for social justice protests and celebrations. Let's talk about the man who designed it, Layla. He died this week. Yeah, everyone knows the free stamp that sits next to City Hall, but they likely don't know the artist behind it, Clays Oden Olden. Oldenburg, who, who died Monday at the age of 93 at his home in studio in Manhattan. He was a world-famous pop artist who, whose work apparently stirred controversy in every city where it appeared and, until his sculptures would eventually become adopted by the city and, and its people. That was certainly the case with the free stamp. Initially in the 80s and 90s, many in Cleveland considered it to be kind of a joke or an insult by coastal elites or local power brokers, especially given that its originally proposed placement was in public square. But eventually... Clevelanders came to embrace it, like you said, as this focal point for civic gatherings and protests and celebrations. Steve Litt tells us in his story that Oldenburg was, was born in Sweden in 1929. He studied at Yale. He worked for two years as a newspaper reporter in Chicago before deciding to take classes at the Art Institute of Chicago. And he moved to New York in the 50s and rejected the style of abstract expressionistic painting that was popular at the time before turning to make these painted plaster sculptures of cigarettes and lingerie and hamburgers and everyday objects. And he exhibited them in 1961 in a show called Store, which was he set up in this real rented storefront. And then soon he started specializing in making these monumental urban sculptures out of 
humor, humorously enlarged everyday objects like a clothespin, a baseball bat, a, a giant hose in a park, a bent screw forming an arch, things like that. And of course, a, a giant stamp. <laughs> and he was widely quoted as having said, I am for an art that does something other than sit on its ass in a museum. I am for an art that embroils itself with the everyday crap and still comes out on top, which I loved. Um, so uh, there's lots in Steve's story about the, the the controversy that swirled around the free stamp and how it ended up in its current location. And and uh, yeah, with with BP rejecting yeah. it. What I didn't know, even though I'd read the previous stories, is that it originally was going to stand upright and you wouldn't have known it said free unless you walked around the bottom and really analyzed right. the contours the of the letters as it was standing yeah. on its its edge like that. Yeah, which would have been that that would have been <laughs> And and I didn't know this. Mike White gets the credit for putting it where it was because the previous or the, the I guess the city council president and the previous administration had waffled on it. And it was only when Mike White became mayor that that got the home. And now it, you can't imagine it being anywhere else. It's it's just part. of. It really Cleveland. is. It is. And, and yeah, how many you know iconic photos do we have in our archives of of gatherings and protests and uh, outside of you know right right around that 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 stamp i mean it's it's incredible i can't imagine cleveland without the free stamp it's right you know. it's just a it's a cool story you're listening to today in ohio without the safety net of legal abortions a lot of people are thinking harder on contraception lisa you and i were talking about this before the podcast episode yesterday and then this story popped up the cleveland clinic is trying to help what are they doing so starting this Saturday and for Saturdays until further notice, they're going to be holding contraception clinics at seven locations. These will be from eight o'clock until noon. Appointments are required and they're open to uh, women 14 and up and you do not have to be a Cleveland Clinic patient. Dr. Tristy Muir, who is the chair of the OBGYN in the Women's Health Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, said that it's critical for women and men to have immediate access to contraception options. Of course, she's referring to the uptick in vasectomies among men that they've seen since Roe v. Wade was overturned. She says that they want to remove any barriers for people getting contraception. So the locations that are included for now, and they hope to expand, they will be in Avon, Lakewood, Brunswick, Beechwood, Willoughby, the Cleveland Clinic main campus, and the Stephanie Tubbs Jones Center at 139th and Euclid. It feels like people considered abortion a safety net in case they had an unwanted pregnancy. And without that safety net, this has become much more heightened. I mean, there's so much more talk about it. Or is it Clarence Thomas said we ought to get rid of the ruling that prohibited states from banning contraception. So people are racing to do it before they lose the right to it. I do feel this is a preemptive move. I think that Clarence Thomas has signaled what the court may do, the Supreme Court, and I think it's scaring the heck out of everybody. So I think they want to get this going and get people on contraception who haven't considered it before, give them a better option or more options for contraception. So yeah, this might be, you know, and who knows how long they'll be able to do it. So I salute them for getting in there and getting it done right away and doing what they can. Yeah, and give credit to the Cleveland Clinic to helping people out. There's a there's a need for information, and they seem like they're filling it. It's today in Ohio. 
Business reporter Sean McDonald reports that Ohio startups had a strong second quarter despite the flagging economy. A source of good news, Laura. Which ones did best in finding investment? Yeah, we'll take any kind of good news these days, right? Um, It's pretty impressive. So Ohio companies got $507 million worth of venture capital just between April and June. This was spread across 48 separate deals. And this is according to the 2022 Venture Monitor. That's a report published by market data company PitchBook and the National Venture Capital Association. This is just the fourth time the state has gone over this quarterly $500 million mark. But quarter one was even stronger. We had $978 million. And in 2021 and quarter two, it had $1.17 billion of venture capital. So it slowed down a little bit. It slowed down everywhere. Uh, just because of the economy is slowing and those mega deals are not as big. But some really big deals, I think the number one was Centerline Biomedical at $33 million. It's a round of funding that was led by the Cleveland Clinic. It's one of those stories that you wouldn't have expected in the second quarter. With inflation running the way it's been running, a lot of people are holding their money in check, worried about, are we about to enter a bad recession? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? But it but it didn't seem to slow this down at all. I guess investors are flush with cash while the rest of us aren't. <laughs> it did slow down a little bit, though. Compared to 2021, these numbers are, are lower, but they're still way bigger than they were seeing in the past since 2014 that they've been keeping track. So there and there are ideas, right? These are all startups. So Fellow is a tech company in Cleveland trying to innovate in the real estate space, which you think, I mean, that's been an out of control industry, right? So that's $25 million it raised. Felix is trying to change the way businesses can buy metal by digitizing the industry. That got $19 million. And Splash Financial, which is a digital lending platform that connects potential students to better student loan offers, which I think we can all agree that needs to be improved, raised $10 million. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Akron has been roiling over the police killing of Jalen Walker with the mayor trying to keep the peace while not sparking more violence. This week, he announced steps to bring more transparency to how police operate. But Layla, I got to say, why did it take the shooting of Jalen Walker to get Akron to move into the modern age of, of policing? I know. I found that to be surprising as well, especially once the mayor kind of said, well, we've been talking about this for for years I, it's kind of stunning. But yeah, the city the city plans to create a citizens review board to hear residents complaints about police officers. And this is a panel that'll serve as an independent voice to the mayor, Daniel Horrigan and city council and the police chief. And it will review policy issues and safety trends, much like the panel that operates in Cleveland under the federal consent decree. It's it's obviously a step in the right direction, though, right? I mean, it's, it is a shame that it's taken the, the Jalen Walker case to get us here. But we, we know now that Jalen Walker was shot 41 times by police after that car chase on June 27th. And since then, his family and, and attorneys have, have really, really been pounding the drum, that demanding accountability and policy change at the police department that would prevent police pursuits for minor offenses and force the city to acquire dash cams for cruisers. Uh, Horgan and, and police chief Steve Milet met with black elected officials of Summit County about setting priorities to help the city through this. And one of the key issues that were discussed was installing dash cams. My let's of the city's administration is behind that, that they really do support that plan. We'll see uh, We'll see how it goes. City Council is expected to gather some feedback from residents before voting on, on both the citizens panel and dash cameras. And, uh, and also Vernon Sykes, the Democratic state senator from Akron, uh, is, is, is appealing to Governor Mike DeWine for some funding 
to make the dash camera pl- plan happen. So a couple irons in the fire Hello. here, but we'll see. They got plenty of stimulus money, aren't they? That's a that? great it point. It just seems to it's me. A, it's a really good use for it right now. It just seems like if you're an hour away from Cleveland where and Cleveland police have gone through all of this evolution and tumult, that you would take some lessons from that and be proactive. Yeah. They, they, they put the dash cams in the cars that are if you get the stimulus money, say, finally, we can do it. And to not have a, a civilian review board at this point. I mean, if they had done all that kind of stuff, maybe they wouldn't be in the position they're in today. I don't know. It, it, they're very slow. You're right. They get credit because they're doing it now. But the smart play would have been to do this, take the lessons from Cleveland, not in the middle of a crisis and a controversy, just doing it to be good government. Right, right. Yeah, it was surprising to, to see that they hadn't. I was just sort of like, what? How how are you this? How, how are you in 2022 and you don't have a, a civilian review panel? That's incredible. Um, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We are well aware of the Cleveland Museums for Art, Natural History, and Rock and Roll, but the city is also home to a museum about something that is important to all of us, money. Lisa, this is a fun one. What's the news on this museum, and what do you see if you go in there? Yeah, the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland downtown, which is at 1455 East 6th Street, but it actually kind of faces along Superior, it reopened its Learning Center and Money Museum yesterday, which has been closed since the pandemic came. Um, I didn't know there was a museum in there. It's a very imposing building to look at. You know, I don't know that I would feel like I could walk into it. But anyway, they do get ten to 12,000 visitors a year, including people that are just walking in off the street or tourists wandering around downtown Cleveland. So they've got a lot of things there. They want to teach you all about money. Um, they do have a video view of the bank vault. Of course, you can't see the vault. They have a historic timeline of the Federal Reserve. They explain all the codes and numbers that you see on your money. Um, they also have information about digital and cyber currencies. And an interesting example, on how the building is protected. Um, they have bulletproof glass and modern security measures. But back in the day, they used to have gun turrets and then they had gas masks and billy clubs that they used, I guess, to beat off the people trying to get the money. That's also in the exhibit. And the famous money tree, a tree that's got money on it, a bunch of dollar bills. So yeah, it sounds interesting. It makes me want to go. I actually eat at a Vietnamese restaurant that is right next door to the Federal Reserve. And I kept seeing out the window people, you know, cops running mirrors under cars and everything. I'm like, what's going on? Well, now I know it's the Federal Reserve. But yeah, these are, there are free tours. Um, they run from 9.30 to 2.30 from Monday through Thursday. If you go, masks are required. And at this point, they're only taking groups of six or less. Yeah, it's something that I've known about for years and never done. Laura, you've never missed a chance to take your kids to something entertaining. Have you done it? I have not. And I don't know how many times I've passed the sign that's like, there's the money tree, right? And, you know, I remember Lolly the Trolley back in fifth grade taking the uh, tour of the city and being like, that's the Federal Reserve. But if you forgot your money from McDonald's, you can't borrow it there. So I don't know. (laughs) One of these days we'll have to go. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to put off the Medical Mart scandal for tomorrow. We'll lead the podcast with it. Let's finish with a story where we can't go to this well deep enough. (laughs) We talked earlier this year about the endearing history of Laura Johnston's house, which is going undergoing some radical updates, I think, too slowly for Laura's Laura's planning. 
But writing about it elicited some new history about the original owners. Laura, what did you learn? Yeah, this is really cool. Literally, I think I was on the phone with you and I'm like, there's someone at my door. And it turned out it was a woman who's lived in Rocky River her whole life and her ancestors built the house that we live in now in 1913, that they bought the the land from the city and started a flower business here on Northview Road and actually built this house. And I'd been very familiar with Dorothy Kaiser, who people, you know, when I moved into this house, people was like, oh, you live in Mrs. Kaiser's house. And she lived here as a teenager and then raised her three daughters here with her husband, Eugene, and they had a flower business. They had all these greenhouses. Rocky River was really big for greenhouses in probably the first half of the the 20th century. But I didn't know who built the house. It turns out it's a couple named the Andersons. And they uh, he came from Scandinavia and his wife, Mary, came from what's now the Czech Republic. And then they didn't have any children, but they brought their niece over to live with them. And I have her wedding picture now, which is so cool. And they ended up losing the house in the Great Depression and sold it to the Kaiser, Dorothy Kaiser's parents, the Hortons. Yeah, I I love the story. I love the the fact that they shared the photos with you, which you which you included. People can mm-hmm. check them out on cleveland.com. But what a cool thing. You write about this. We look, we talked about it. I have a whole folder of emails in my email box from people telling us about the history of their houses. If we ever figure out how to get a reporter to write these stories, we're going to have a lot of people that want to talk about them. I just don't know how we're going to get those stories written. Although I guess we can just have you write them because <laughs> I, I don't know that I have all the time for that, but I did get a message. Someone said they want to know what's happened with their house because when they did some work, they found old doctor's tools and um, records, and they think there was a practice out of their house in the 20s, which, that I mean, that makes sense, right? That's really cool. And I think there's a lot of interest in old houses to tell their story, and obviously you've gotten that. So, yeah, I since there's not a lot of work being done in my house currently, I need another column. So maybe if people want to send me the story of their houses, I can at least put some of those together. <laughs> I have a whole column. bunch of them. I can all forward right. them all to you. I've been sitting on them for months. Read Laura's story and see the pictures on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. That does it. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 